like to hear the puppeteers and play the characters that you cheer. So join us as we go, 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 below the frame. On this episode of Below the Frame, we'll be speaking with Sesame Street Muppet performer Tyler Bunch. You know, Tyler has played a ton of characters on puppet shows and on Sesame Street, including Elmo's dad, Louie. We're also going to be talking about the phrase blue skies and what that means for us on Sesame Street. So watch your mouth. It's time to go Below the Frame. Go, go, go Below the Frame. Welcome to Below the Frame, the podcast for fans of the Sesame Street and Disney Muppets. Here is where we get to learn about Muppet performers and others in the Muppet universe. I am your host, Matt Vogel, and today... We are learning about Tyler Bunch. Tyler is one of our utility performers on Sesame, which means uh, he's got a lot of character skills and is called upon to use those skills quite often. Uh, like I said in the tease, he also plays Elmo's dad, Louie, a role that was originated by Bill Beretta, so you know we're going to talk about that too. So, uh, you know, why don't we get to it then? I- I'm ready. Are you ready? I'll take your lack of response as a resounding yes. So let's go below the frame with Tyler Bunch. Please welcome Tyler Bunch. Hi, Tyler. Hello. Hello Mr. Thank you. Thank you very much for sitting down and talking Let's about go. your life in this crazy business that we uh, both are in. <laughs> it, it is a uh, crazy business, isn't it? Uh, it's crazy is uh, uh, as long as you italicize in the most bold, bolded font possible. Yeah. Underline it and then <laughs> put those like, you know, brackets and exclamation points yeah. on either side. All the things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, I want to talk to you about your life. You want to, do you want to walk down a, a trail with me, a little, a little path? This is your story. Sure. <laughs> you grew up in Oklahoma, did you not? You're, you're a Midwestern boy like me. I, I call myself uh, a, a Southern boy, mm-hmm. uh, but my experience is more akin to a military brat. In Wait, that, what? Yeah. In that uh, my father uh, pursued a career in teaching collegiate level, specifically in in the domain of theater. Mm -hmm. So I was born in his undergraduate days. My sister was born in his graduate school days. And then we went through him going from university to university across the southern part of the country trying to find positions that would advance his career, hopefully getting into a a place of, of being able to achieve tenure. So where where was it? Like, where did you find yourself? Born in a little town called Tahlequah, Oklahoma, in the northeastern mm-hmm. state, which for those who are puppet-informed is actually also a puppet-centric place. It's where some of the national puppetry festivals have occurred. But I wasn't into puppets uh, uh, when I was um, teething. Um, and then <laughs> uh, went to uh, Virginia, UVA, so where my dad got his undergrad, uh, Tulsa in between those two because Tulsa is where my parents were born. So we would go back to Hovel with their collective families in times of gathering steam to go to the next new place. Um, So uh, Oklahoma, Virginia, Uh, Tennessee, the Great Smoky Mountain Passion Play. My dad got a job as the technical director there and then another job in Kentucky. Uh, Back to Oklahoma, Texas, two, two or three different places in Texas because teaching job, then teaching job went away. He became a hardware salesman. 
uh, for the Duo Fast company, and then back to teaching. Then uh, Monroe, Louisiana, uh, Northeastern Louisiana University, two or three different houses within there, uh, which meant two or three different school systems. Oh. Parents got divorced. Mom took us back to Tulsa because it was where she was comfortable being. Mm-hmm. Um, going back and forth summers to visit dad. He eventually got his doctorate in Florida, settled at a small university in St. Petersburg, Florida, Eckerd College. I had started my collegiate career at Oklahoma State, but because of the deal, and he wouldn't have to pay for college, and I wouldn't either. Both my sister and I wound up finishing our undergraduate college degrees in St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay area, Florida. It must have been hard to make friendships. No, yeah, it, it was, and I think, believe it or not, I think it's, it's carried over because uh, I was always the new kid, and the relationships always kind of went away just by nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I wasn't interested in long-term friendships. I just never had the opportunity. It yeah. was, hey, get to know people. I, I, and, and not the connections weren't, weren't deep. They just weren't long-lasting. You know, I would right. connect with people very intently for a very short period of time and then move on, which is oddly kind of how our business works anyway yeah. in terms of the jobs that we do and how those works and how quickly you have to create very highly communicative relationships with people. It kind of maybe seasoned me for that a little bit. But I did a lot of playing by myself. Like I, th- here's, here's the odd contradiction. What, what it created for me is I was an affable individual that could have intelligent conversations, make people laugh, empathize with them very quickly. I was voted, uh, the one place I went to school for th- th- everyone else's typical term, I was in all of high school in the same school. Two different houses, but high school on the same school. I, by the time I was a senior, and I don't say this with any sort of pride, it's just the fact, I was voted the most popular boy in school as a senior. Mr. Mm-hmm. Thomas Alva Edison High School, I was voted Mr. Edison. Huh. I spent every Friday and Saturday night alone at home. I had hmm. no close friends until around my huh. junior year. There was a, a guy a year younger than I that we would hang out, we would make silly videos together. But like all the typical, you know, I was considered part of the popular crowd, but I never went right. to the popular crowd parties. I never hung out with those people. I didn't, I didn't go on my first date until um, my junior year of, of high school. I just, I, I, you know, all of my connections were effectively superficial, for lack of a better term. That is a lot of actors' lives. They, they yeah. like you said, they they go from you know, town to town, regional theater to regional theater, doing a, a show, and then they move on to the next one, and maybe they cross paths again somewhere down the road, but that's kind of their, that nomadic actor's right. life. Exactly. And, and again, it's it. probably why I am both, I, I, I feel like the career has sort of fit me like a glove, and at the same time, I'm a little jealous of those folks who've been able to say, well, we've been friends for 25 years or whatever it is. Right. You know, got their, they buy houses next to each other and, you know, do all that, you know, adulting and life stuff. Um, Mine's not had, again, very fulfilling experiences, amazing Mm -hmm. conversations, amazing friendships. There just haven't been that many really intense relationships in my life. And, and that comes with knowing, you know, you've 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 had very long lasting friendships in this in this business. Oh yeah, you know, I've, we've known each other for twenty 
you're you're gonna 22 23 years maybe even longer because you're not even gonna remember the first time we met that's how impactful i am matt (laughs) no i do remember this though i remember uh that i used to come to your apartment on the upper west side and we would do monitor uh training that's right. We did. We did the we did the monitor nights. But, but I don't we know actually where I met, met you before that. We I'm met at an memory. improv workshop. Okay. Run by a, a another very famous puppeteer, a female, who was shipped in specifically to do it. Are you remembering this, have, Kevin? Uh, ran an improv workshop. Would have been Camille. Yes. Was it? Do you remember what okay. year that was? Oh God, no, I don't. I can't. I know. I can't remember this at all. I remember doing a workshop, but I don't know. Like it's so hard for I'm me to pretty remember. Pretty confident it was 1994. 94? Yeah. Well, it may, I think it had to be a little later than that because I don't think I moved. I didn't move to New York until 94, after 94. So maybe it was... After 94? Uh, like November of 94. Okay, then it was early 95. It may, it may have been 95. It was early 95. I can't believe we've been in this business that long. <laughs> uh, all right, but Tyler, before we get into that kind of stuff, I do want to ask, so you... You played a lot by yourself as a kid, but what did you do? Oh, I was going to be a zoologist. That really? Was, I was, until I was 14 years old, I was going to go live in the woods and study animals and study our impact on on animals and, yeah, become one of those nature documentarians. That was going to be my thing. <laughs> what made you think that that's what you wanted to be? Do you know? Um, I just always had an extreme fascination with, with living creatures. Um I, a lot of kids have the fascination with dinosaurs when they're young. Yeah, I got those um, those green plastic kits with the index cards that had the picture of the thing on the back and the the genus and all their names on the other side, and <laughs> and you got the collections of them. The, yeah, what was it Wildlife Sanctuary or something? I can't remember the name of them, but they came in little green lunchbox looking yeah. containers, and you got all those cards. I had. All of them. I had all of them memorized. <laughs> oh, I can wow. watch national. I can watch National Geographic, National Geographic Channel now, muted, yeah. and tell you the very least the name of the creature, where it lives, its basic habits, what it like, what it what it eats, why it's unique in the animal kingdom, and they would want to have a documentary about it anyway. Like t- still to this day, like I'm an extreme. Um, lover of nature, if you will, uh-huh. but in the observational sense. Like my wife wants to go and cuddle and kiss everything. <laughs> right. um, like she, she actually, you know, we make jokes about if she had her nature show, she would go out and like try to feed the lions vegetarian <laughs> g- gazelles and keep them from chasing them. Yeah, but yeah, I, I did all you know, a plus 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 student in all of the science courses. I mm. you know advanced biology in in. Um, in high school, dissecting horses and sheep and Di- all that stuff. Dissecting and, horses? Yeah. Like, I was, I was, this is what I was going to do. Well, what happened then to make you suddenly, I mean, at age 14 to suddenly, no, I'm not doing that now. My oh. parents got divorced. And up until the age of 11, the only time we spent time with dad because of his career, and obviously now we know because he wasn't necessarily happy at home, Mm-hmm. You had to go to his workplace. Like he typically was the tech director of whatever theater department he was in. So right. one of the reasons I know how to hold a hammer and run a saw and did some professional carpentry as a day job when I first got to New York is spending time in the scene shop was the only way you got to spend time with dad uh, doing the uh-huh. summer theater programs. Being around the theater was dad time uh, and the only dad time. So I right. had these wildlife pursuits and then would go play doing theater stuff, you know, in the summers 
And then when I got to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and thrust into this new environment where all these kids had been growing up together their whole lives, and again, I was the new kid, the only place where I had mastery was theater class. I I was the dude in theater class. I had answers to all the questions. I had no qualms, you know, no nerves about getting up and reading something cold in front of the class, uh, you know, <laughs> doing scenes, making a fool of yourself, like the kind of things that kids in those high school years are scared to right. crap about. I was just like, no, yeah, this is what this is home. This and so I it was huh. the only place that felt like home was theater class. And I slowly began to realize there were kids in the advanced biology class who were better than me, who were smarter than me, mm. who were glomming onto the science faster than I was. Not that I wasn't poor, don't get me wrong. Right. But I I wasn't the top of the heap. So the likelihood of top of the heap survival in that arena was 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 slipping away. Yeah, uh, and meanwhile, confident. were you feeling like at the, at the same time you're thinking, well, but I'm over here. I'm the I'm the top of the hill. Exactly, the and specifically, what did it was competitive forensics. Did you ever do speech and forensics yeah. in school? Yeah, yeah. You know the monologue competitions and yep. stuff. Yeah, I I quote unquote went to state every year for like three years. Um, final wow. rounds at state every year for like three years. So I was like, okay. This is something I'm doing okay at. Yeah. But I'm that it, we still all have those questions in the back of our head, and it wasn't until I was about to finish my collegiate career and Dad kind of pulled me aside. And um, my father, who's unfortunately no longer with us, I've actually outlived him as far as circles around the sun at this point. Um, mm. It's still crazy to me to think that I, 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 would, I am two years older than my dad ever was. It's just weird That's, to me. That is weird, yeah. Um, but he pulled me aside and he basically said, you know, when are you gonna do this? Are you gonna do this? And I was and I was like, I I think I think I did, yeah, I think I wanna try to be a performer. And I was just barely scratching the puppetry world at that point. This was all mm-hmm. just acting in musical theater and that kind of stuff. And he said, Look, I wanna be honest with you. I've I've had a lot of kids come through a lot of schools and a lot of classes. And in my collegiate career so far, as your teacher, I think you're in the top 10 of every student I've ever had. As your dad, I think you're in the top three. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, you know, all right. right. Numbers game. I, I could probably survive at this. I guess I will give it a shot. So you got a, you got a BA in theater. In theater. Most and useless piece I of know. paper in the world. <laughs> but you finished. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, I did. That's important. But you did. You st- you stuck around in Peter- in St. Petersburg, the Tampa, St. Petersburg area. Yeah, I there was a mix up. I had done um, in transitioning from Oklahoma State University to St. Petersburg Eckerd College. I had taken a, a semester and done Disney's college program where you go and you work at the parks uh-huh. for, for a semester. Four and a half months for me, it wound up being closer to seven months because it, it was a spring semester into summer, and I just hung out and worked a little longer. And oddly, it had nothing to do with one another, but having Disney on the resume was an okay thing that uh, an audition came around. Oh, oh, the, the reason I mentioned that is that uh, the year I was supposed to walk 
uh, college, um, I went into the bursar's office and I was like, I didn't get my paper. He's like, oh, well, you didn't have enough credits yet. I'm like, what are you talking about? We went over. She had seen that I had been given a certain number of credits for an internship before coming into the college uh-huh. officially. And they were like, we never give that many. So I, I bumped it down to the amount we normally give people for an internship. And I was kind of like, as a um, okay, I, that's all right. That's not cool. Um, so I started, I enrolled in summer (laughs) courses and was halfway through the summer courses and had made an appeal about it. And after the appeal, they reversed it. So I had gone and enrolled in summer courses to get enough credits to graduate. And then halfway through the summer, oh yeah, you have enough. You graduated. Yeah. So I didn't get to walk with my friends, and I oh. missed the whole thing. And so now it's like I had decided I was going to save up a certain amount of money anyway before I moved to New York because I didn't want to hit the streets of New York having to jump into a day job. Smart. So I had these goals in mind, and this audition came along for an anti-drug show for kids, live show for kids that went in mm-hmm. library school fashion, you know, into the cafetoria assembly lounges, whatever their main <laughs> – Rooms were and set yes. this thing up and the all kids purpose room exactly. <laughs> and um, we auditioned for this this anti drug program called the Disney Crew, which was uh, one of the first times Disney down there did a co sponsorship with an outside entity, hmm. and they took advantage of uh, some of the governmental outlets of the Tampa Bay, Sarasota area, and this outreach program for kids. And Disney teamed up and they did this thing that had done the Orlando school system on the other coast with a different group of, of kid puppeteers. So mm-hmm. I auditioned oh, Was it a puppet? Was it a puppet thing? It was a puppet thing. Was this your first puppet thing? This is my first professional puppet thing. What was your interest in puppets before then? Um, apparently, I liked puppets as a kid, as a, uh-huh. as a young kid. My, my maternal grandfather... Uh, built me a little foldable puppet stage, and I had some puppets when I was a kid, and I and I played with them, mm-hmm. but it was kind of like a passing. Oh, this is fun, you know. And then the next thing would come along, right? Um, so I, I wasn't full on passionate, but I was curious. And then in my high school days, my sister and I started watching in the summer on HBO. We started watching Fraggle Rock, and I became fascinated with it. For the first time about how is that happening? How are they doing that? What's yeah. going on with that? How do the little ones work and, and the big ones work? And then there's <laughs> the medium side. How are they doing that? And just trying to figure out from a mechanical point of view, like what's yeah. going on? And, you know, it's good music and, and, and you know, it's an environmentally yep. informed show. It was one of the first ones that was. And so it was also kind of piqued my interest as far as that goes. And, you know, life circles in harmony with other living beings and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So uh, it kind of stuck in my head as being interesting. And then in my college days, I did a weird play that one of the perform- one of the characters in the show was supposed to have an imaginary dog that he just pictured. And I was having a difficult time finding the comedic moments with a fake dog. So in order to give focus to the comedy of his connection with the dog, I felt like I needed something there. So yeah. I asked uh, the author of the play who happened to come be part of this this program that we did if it would be okay if I turned it into a sock puppet like the dad took one of his old brown socks with holes in it and made it into a little you know googly eyed dog and he would play with the dog and you know pet it and whatever and run away uh-huh. so um, I found I had a natural 
instinct for making that kind of moment work. And because of that, a friend of the family, I want to say like a year later, said, Tyler, you're into puppet stuff, right? I was like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Here. And sure. she, she shoved an ad in the paper under my nose. And there was a, a very talented uh, builder, designer, performer uh, named Todd Coyle, who had been um, a puppeteer for, um, uh, you know, what I kind of call a church puppeteer, guys who'd, mm-hmm. who'd, who'd done puppets for, for um, youth experiences um, with his uh, religious pursuits uh, and had become a very talented builder and had imitated the Henson style. Yeah. And got hired as a local when Henson did the Muppets of Walt Disney stuff and got exposed to monitor puppetry for the first time ever. And his mind was blown. He's like, because he'd only ever done live puppetry. <laughs> yeah. So he went home and he practiced by himself for about six months just trying to to perfect all the techniques that he had been shown and kind of hit a wall with realizing he didn't have anybody to to work off of. Like you can uh-huh. only do it by yourself so much. You can only spontaneously react <laughs> right. to Without so many somebody things. to play off of, it's kind of a, so just he, an exercise in right. can I enter and exit a frame? It's like it's, it's like yeah, it's like being a piano player and only ever doing scales, <laughs> and never having a piece of yeah. music to play. You're just scales. Yep. Oh, I'm doing scales that's again. It. That's what I'm doing. Um, so he put an ad in the paper and was like, "I don't want money. I can't pay money, but I want to teach people how to do this so that we can just play as a group." And I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. I'm gonna try that." So mm-hmm. I went and I tried it, and it was awesome. I was the this is so cool because you know again my my sort of scientific mechanically oriented carpenter. Um, how do things work mind combined with character building and find fun stuff to do with your voice combined with the sculpture and uh, mm-hmm. everything about it, you know, the integration of all, I was like, this is cool. This is, you know, so it was just an, an, an exercise in getting good at a new thing, basically. But were you able to make that flip in your mind with the monitor? I, I would be lying if I said... It was an in, like I've seen people. I don't know. If I you know. Have, I've seen people who the switch happens immediately. Yes, and it it's freaks very rare. me out. I, I don't think I was immediately flipped. Uh-huh. I think it took, but I think it was short. I think it was like three weeks. But I mean, just in terms of getting the the yeah. notion of it, you'd still every once in a while in those first six months get turned around and go, oh crap, right, you know, or whatever, <laughs> until that switch gets flipped. But um, there were like twenty of us, twenty five of us that showed up for that first you know, auditions, let's see how this works, sort yeah. of, let's show you what's going on thing that Todd did. And the next week there were like 20, and the next week there were like 12. Mm-hmm. And then it worked out to be like there were there were four of us that were just always there. Yeah, And the four of us like, you know, we could do this more than one night a week, right? And they're like, yeah, we totally could. <laughs> so then the four of us are doing like you know, technically five, or doing like, you know, two nights a week. And Eventually, after like you know, we would tease each other and set each other up and give each other challenges and hand each other songs on one day that we'd never heard before and come in and lip sync to it the next time you you're in and you know just like really kind of trying to push our game. Yeah, up. well, you weren't just doing not just the monitor technique, but you were also improving. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little was bit. Was there script and stuff or very rarely script? I wouldn't say it was never script, but. We would play with some stuff that had been written, like like some character stuff that he had screwed around with, and we'd play yeah. around with it. But but and we would definitely do improv things. 
but it was mostly trying to make a believable emotional performance out of a lip sync karaoke moment, okay. basically. Like just trying to find those moments of silent acting outside of the lyrics and surprising the other people in the room with putting a layer on the song that isn't in the oral experience and pu- mm-hmm. putting putting things on it that were over and above. Um, and again, just challenging each other. And eventually he said, you know what, we should try and do something. And so we did uh, uh, kind of a teaser style showcase video. Um, we did a lip sync version of a cover of Blue Suede Shoes that he directed. And we all did parts of them, this band and playing music and stuff. And then he kind of shopped that demo around and we got, um, and again, this is all happening on weeknights and weekends yeah. outside of college, just everybody's free time. And we got some interest from a group that was a producing a local kid show for the Tampa Bay area, um, the the Fox Kids Hour or something. I, I, think, I mm-hmm. think it was a Fox station, but I can't remember. But um, then their interest wound up having Todd develop this uh, Rex and Randy's Room, which was a five-minute segment, uh, a la the segments on Sesame Street, of these two brothers and their their sister who was kind of the smart one, the Lisa Simpson-esque sort of tomboyish character. And they were the typical comedic duo of one not so bright, the other not bright enough to realize that what he's doing is not so bright. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the two of them getting into trouble or whatever. And we started doing that for about six months. And it gained some popularity. So It was fairly successful, was it not? I mean, it, it... It won there, some awards. It won the Cable Ace Award. Correct. It won, you know, the the Cable Ace for kids programming a couple of years in a row, which I didn't know until I had sent my tape to New York a year and a half. I knew, I found out almost two years later. It was about a, a year and a half after we did these things, or at least a year after I was involved, that I sent this compilation tape that the Cable Ace Award that I thought we were getting for local programming was for local programming. I thought, we got the Tampa Bay Award. Oh, that's cute. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize is that for two years in a row, we got the national award for local programming for kids' shows for two years in a row. That's pretty good. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) And again, it doesn't even exist. You can't even find it on the internet anymore. And how long did that last for you? (sighs) I guess I was I did it just barely two years worth. Mm-hmm. Um, it kept going because one of the other performers that was part of that show was Vicki Eibner, who mm-hmm. the world circled back around for the two of us. Yeah. And she wound up originating the character of Ojo on Bear in the Big Blue House um, and actually like had secured the role before I had secured the roles of, of Trilo and Pop. So she was kind of at the audition rooting for me, already having gotten the part. So worlds got to kind of collide again. Yeah. So what happened in that time? Is that when you decided to move to New York? Rex and Randy's room fizzled a little bit. Inside baseball here, the stuff that that it doesn't really matter, but I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Todd Coyle, very talented dude, had applied for the desk job of running the Tampa arm of the Disney crew. He was hired to maintain, clean the puppets, organize the the artists, deal with the transportation. He was basically the road manager of the Disney crew and was hired before the auditions happened. 
it just so happened my stepmother was one of the people working for the community outreach program and was one of the people who decided who got hired. Uh-huh. My stepmother kind of made sure Todd got hired. Yeah. And Todd, I didn't think he was going to have to make me get hired, but Todd uh, at the conference table with the other Disney people ensured that I got hired. Oh. And the reason I almost didn't get hired, they told Todd at the table, he told me later, that they weren't going to hire me, even though I was sort of already kind of obviously head and shoulders above the other folks that auditioned because I've been doing so much puppetry by this point. And it confused him. He's like, but he's like the best. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's really, really good. He's, he's too good. He'll get bored and he'll start changing the show. We've seen it happen before. Uh-huh. And I was like, that just like <clears throat> blew my brain. I, yeah. you know, I started to get it then. Because they were absolutely right. <laughs> um, I didn't change it in bad ways. I did. I would find ways to accentuate the the choreography or whatever Enhance to have some fun. It. There you are. Um, that it was never inappropriate, but whenever they would do a check in, the Disney people would do a check in. I remember the one choreographer where her her glasses would go down her nose and her eyebrows would kind of raise. She go that one song. I was like, I don't know. He's like, tone it down. <laughs> so that took up both. You know. Todd and mine, I think Vicky was part of it for a certain while too. That that took up a lot of our time, so we weren't as into the Rex and Randy thing. And then mm-hmm. I went and did a a, a show uh, under my father's direction. My father got to realize kind of a lifelong dream at the end of my collegiate career, the middle of my sister's, of finally doing a musical after for him ten years of attempting uh, to be part of the uh, theater festival in Avignon, France. The mm. Festival the- the Théâtre is a big thing that happens every summer in Avignon. And he had been connected with the vice mayor there and been trying to do a show there, had tried to do a show when, when my sister and I were, were much younger mm-hmm. uh, that had gotten messed up because of some political goings-on and, and tourists unfortunately meeting their end in Europe and causing... Oh. The point being that, that this, there was this thing my dad had always tried to do of yeah. being the first... Uh, American musical to perform at this French festival. And he finally got to realize that dream. Both my sister and I happened to be in the show. And that was the last thing I did before I moved to New York was that that summer of 93 going to, to be in that show. Hey, Tyler, hang on just a second, because it's time for a word from our sponsor. Are you a puppeteer? Hey, hey, Frankie, Wolfie, come here. Look, I got a joke for you. (laughs) Having a little too much fun between takes? (laughs) Okay, stop me if you've heard this one, okay? Making an off-color comment to the crew. (laughs) This this puppet walks into a bar, right? Maybe getting a little risque. (laughs) And then the bartender says... Wait, no! Who was that puppeteer I saw you with last night? Come right this way, Timmy. I think one of your favorite lovable family-friendly puppet characters is here to make your day extra sunny. And then the puppet says, Oh boy, today is the day I meet my idol. I'm so super excited. That was no puppeteer. Do not finish that line. That was my... (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, 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 nuts. Uh, um, uh, hey, hey, uh, n- never meet your heroes, kid. <clears throat> Dirty mouth. Clean- 
clean up their act with blue skies. When there is a child visiting the set of, say, oh, a children's television show, <laughs> give a shout of, the sky is blue, to alert your cast and crew that a little one is on set and to keep their speech strictly PG. Let's try it. You want to talk about the alphabet? If I could rearrange the alphabet, I'd put you and I together. <laughs> the sky is blue. I mean, let's talk about the number three. As Fabulous! Hey kid, the word of the day is Tell your mom, it'll be funny. Hey mom, mom, I learned the word of the day. It's Timmy, you can't say Oh, now I say Um, ma'am, the sky is blue. Please stop saying We are going home. Blue skies for a good clean set atmosphere. No matter what. That's right. Today's episode of Below the Frame is brought to you by Blue Skies. Oh, hang on. Come in. What is going on in here, oh, Dad? Oh, uh, it's just a word from our sponsor. Well, the language. I mean, I heard a lot of words, and a lot of them were not appropriate. I, look, I'm sorry, Jack. Um, two things. First, I didn't know you were so sensitive. And uh, second, it, it was actually, you know, just to illustrate the point of our ad. Fake ad. Sure. Uh, hey, Jack, do you want to know what the ad... Fake ad. Want to know what it's about? Why not? Well, it's about blue skies. That's what? Blue skies. <laughs> blue skies. It's uh, something that we say on set. You know, it's, uh, and actually, I tried to find it on TV set lingo websites, but I didn't find anything about it. But it's something that's said on a children's television set when kids are present, and it's like a code word. Code word for what? Uh, to let us know not to curse or to say anything rude because there are kids around. Hmm. Maybe you should use that around here. You mean we should say blue skies at home? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, we've got a lot of kids in our family, and I don't want to say it, but sometimes your language is a little... Oh, okay. All right. I got it. Noted. And I'd like to thank Blue Skies, which isn't a real product, for being a sponsor of Below the Frame. We are back with Tyler Bunch. It was cool. It happened. You were able to go. You did that. And then your father had said, if you're going to make a go of acting, you should do it. Everybody's got their... This is how I think I'm going to make it in New York or L.A. story. And mm -hmm. you go with a plan, and the plan either you are one of those lottery winners that it happens for you on your first or second audition, and your <laughs> career goes, and wow, this was amazing. I don't see why people thought this was tough. Right. And then there's option two, where it's completely different from anything you ever imagined, and something yep. works out anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which one did you have? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So my my plan, I had a the, the typical five year plan. I, I had saved up, you know, I tried to save up money. Uh, that job for the Disney crew, um, I thought I was going to be able to borrow my stepmother's car. She wasn't cool with me borrowing her car. I wound up having to buy my first car. Uh, the job got cut down. There were fewer hours and less money per hour than we thought. So like my whole year plan of saving up money to go it just was completely obliterated. And um, I was sitting after doing the typical flyer handout that everyone does uh, when you're doing a theater festival. If anybody's been to or, or seen a major festival where there's multiple acts going on and there's people saying, come see our show, whether it's Edinburgh or Avignon or wherever the heck, we were doing our morning run, one of the other cast members and I, uh, a very dear friend of mine, her name is uh, Pina De Rosa, Giuseppina De Rosa, Italian-born Swiss dual resident who was part of the international program at Ecker College. Um, 
we had finished listening for English and saying, oh, you speak English. You want to come see a show in English? <laughs> and passing our flyers out. We ran out of flyers. So we were sitting in a little cafe in Avignon having our frites. Um, and <laughs> she asked me the same thing. So what's your plan? What are you going to do? And I was like, well, I was going to do this. And I didn't really save up enough money, so I'm just going to do it anyway. I guess I'll just have to get a job when I get there, blah, blah, blah. And again, the plan was I figured I'd hit the street, go to auditions, um, musical theater was the sort of goal, hoping to get into TV film as an actor. And I've done the puppet stuff. I'll send the tape to, I don't know, Jim Henson company or something and see if something happens. And my lack of achieving the goal of, and then it was only $6,000, $6,000. I mean, to a college graduate who's never, ever had money. Like we were government cheese people. I don't know if you were government cheese family, but we were, um, we we had the food stamps and got the Velveeta block and stuff when I was very young. We, we we were not affluent people. And part of the reason the whole go to school in Florida thing was because there was no way any of us, my parents were never going to be able to pick up the bill for all of college for two kids. Um, and mm. if my dad hadn't gotten that job, we neither my sister or I would probably have a college degree or we would both be in ridiculous. She actually, she went on to get a master's, so she does have debt, but I don't. The notion of not making that goal was obvious on my face. So when we finished the show, when she was going with her family from Avignon to Switzerland, and the day she packed up, she said, I want you to meet me in in the room where I'm staying, where we're all staying in in Avignon at this um, college dorm complex. And she said, I want to make you an offer, and I don't want to be insulting. Um, I really believe in you, and I believe in your talent. I want you to be able to do what you want to do, and I don't think you should have to compromise. I don't know if you know, my family just sold a house. The kids got some of the money. I want to offer to lend you the money that you were going to save to move to New York. And I was like, well, I, 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 you see, she's like, and, and you pay me back when you can, no interest. I, I, and, and, you know, hopefully you'll be able to, but, but I really don't think you shouldn't have to compromise. I, I believe in you. So I want to wow. do that for you. That is remarkable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is r- ridiculous. So. She she cut me a check right there, and when we when we got back to the states, my dad packed up all my stuff in a pickup truck. He had phoned a friend of his who works uh, who, who who had worked at the university before I got in there as a guest artist and actor out of New York who had come down and just done a guest artist semester, and said, "My son's interested. Can you help out?" By the time I got to New York, he had found me uh, a roommate to interview with on the equity call board. He let me stay with him for the first three days. <laughs> I went and met the roommate up in Washington Heights. She's like, you're great. Sure, this will be fine. Uh, my roommate, the current roommate, moves out in about a, a week. I was like, oh, oh, crap, I have my stuff. She's like, oh, oh. You know what? Put your stuff in my dining room. It'll be fine. So I put all my stuff in, in her dining room for a week, went and found places to crash for a week until I went there. And then I, I want to say it was about four weeks later, I I sent my tape to the Jim Henson Company while I was going and doing auditions. Uh, oh, yeah, so that first week I got introduced to a friend of his. Um, uh, he, he said they're doing this um, show. This friend of mine's doing a showcase. You should go audition. So I went and auditioned for my first. Uh, it was an equity showcase because it was a showcase. There could be other people. It, yeah. it wasn't paying or anything, but I went to the audition. I did my audition. It was a, tri- it was a compilation show about, about the AIDS epidemic. They saw my resume that I had scenic construction ability because I had mm-hmm. you know been doing that in college to make extra money, 
they're like, you, you've done set construction and, and design. Would would you have any interest in helping us out with a set if 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 it came to it? I was like, you know, I'm sure, <laughs> whatever, I could do that. <laughs> yeah. So I got the part, but it was contingent on designing and building the set. Oh no. <laughs> So I was like, okay, that's that's All fine. Right. So like, we have connections. Um, there's a friend we know who works at the Juilliard School, and they've mm-hmm. offered us their their storage set pieces. Uh, if there's any way you could cobble together stuff from there, so I was like, oh, okay. So I met this guy and went to the Juilliard storage room, and they had all these platforms. And he's like, this is all you can choose from. And there was like literally a row of platforms made out of two by six. Um, you know, timber, lumber, and and plywood, just um, a myriad of various uh, dimensions of platforms. <laughs> and that was all they would let me, and some Uh-oh. chairs and stuff. And that was all they let me use. I was like, okay, here we go. So <laughs> uh, I stole from some of the designs I'd seen my dad do, and I, I cobbled together a set that was just this series of platforms that had areas that could stand for different things. One... One, if you pulled out one thing, it became like a diner booth. And then there was another one where there was like a thing, you know, came down and it was a bed. Another one, you know, was a balcony area, two steps that went around. So I, I just, I, I made this thing out of this stuff. And using what you had. Using what what, what they had in their what storage room. Yeah. The, the few things they would let me use that already had screw holes stuffed together in it. <laughs> it was funny too when the guy dropped it off in the van. He's like, this is the stuff you want? I was like, yeah. He's like, Okay. <laughs> Well, two <laughs> things happened from that. The Juilliard folks came to see the show, and they were like, "You made that out of that? <laughs> do you do you need a job?" So, <laughs> I yeah. immediately got a job as a scenic carpenter at the Juilliard School, mm-hmm. as, which you know I had to take a day job. But it's the Juilliard School. If you're going to take a day job, come on. Um, <laughs> So, and you're doing something that you're pretty good at. You're doing something that you've done yeah. for a and, lot and of done, your It's life, like it know. takes no, like, I learned amazing stuff. Like, have you ever moved a piano, Matt? Uh, no. Yeah, it's, not, not it's, really. there's a lot of things about pianos. They're, they're built to come apart. They're built for the legs to come off. And if you know oh. how and where it all goes together, you know, you can take them apart and roll them and stuff. Like things oh. I never thought I would ever have to learn. And there were lots of. I actually got a, a puppet gig out of 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 that performing at Juilliard. So there are lots of cool things that happen. And then also from that same showcase, one of the other performers said, "You sing, right?" And I was like, "There's a guy." So I went and auditioned for the New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players, mm-hmm. which are a semi-professional troupe of you know operetta that tour the country doing shows. It's a addendum to any sort of professional career, and it's a good thing to have on the resume. There's no way you could survive at it except for a few of them that run it. But I was a company member then for the Gilbert and Sullivan players because of that initial showcase, because of the first thing I did in New York for 10 years. Now, did you decide to send in an audition tape just like as a what if or a just a just in case or just trying to cover as many bases as you could? Well, now because I didn't know anything about it, I know that I sent them far too much material. I sent them like a half hour tape. Like okay. <laughs> six of my favorite scenes, which yeah. again, they were five minute bit. I like I did not it was not a compilation reel. <laughs> so very poor calling card on my part. But I literally just I was like, But you gain experience. How would you have exactly. you were very young and exactly. how would you have known? Um could have like just last a couple of people. What's a good thing to send <laughs> if you're sending video to someone to yeah. assess your work? Well, but still. 
You know, it's a different thing. It's a, it's the it puppet is. people. How, how, maybe Plus, they it want was full a physical fledged. tape. That was the other thing. Being, you know, it was an actual physical <laughs> thing, and they cost money. And, and yeah. you wanted, like, if I'm going to invest yeah, in a thing, it should be as much <laughs> as I can give them on this thing. Uh, so you sent this tape in, but when did your first puppet, your first puppet gig with Jim Henson Company come around? What I consider my first gig, I've told I've told this story before, and for the listeners who've heard it, I apologize. That's, you know, I sent the tape in. I got tired of waiting two weeks, three weeks, (laughs) and I called up, and I now know Renee Rochelle was on the other end of the line, only because she has a very distinctive voice, and I now know who I was talking to. But she was the talent Talent coordinator coordinator at that time. time. Exactly, at that time. Yeah. So, hi, I sent in a tape. I was wondering if you looked at it. (laughs) We get a lot of tapes. (laughs) Oh. So, yeah, we'll let you know. It will probably be a while. I was like, okay, thanks. And I stewed on that for about a week. <laughs> and then I called up and I totally lied. Well, that's not necessarily true. It wasn't a complete fabrication. I did get a job. Uh-huh. I think it was another uh, murder mystery weekend job in Long Island <laughs> where I go and improvise over a weekend making people think other people got killed and yeah, do parties look, and stuff. That counts as a job. It does. It does. It's taking you out of town. It, it was. <laughs> I got a job. It's taking me out of town. Yep. I uh, would really appreciate the opportunity to to stay home, obviously. But additionally, if there's any possibility, you or, or your company or anyone else thinks that that I would be a valuable asset, and you would, I would be able to be a part or even spectate anything. I would much rather stay local, just for the opportunity to be exposed to it, if nothing else. So. Is, is yep. there any way somebody could look at the tape just so I know whether, whether I should even bother and go ahead and go out of town if, if I shouldn't? Oh, um, oh, can I call you back? Sh- sure. <laughs> About an hour later, the phone rings. We got somebody who could look at it tomorrow morning. Is that too late? <laughs> uh, no, no, it's, that's, that'd, be, that'd be fine. Thank you so much. So Kevin looked at it. Kevin Clash looked at it that day and uh, invited me to spectate on the set. Which got me, you know, the personal interaction. Let's see if this guy's a crazy or not, kind of right. a thing that now I know was what happens. At the time, I thought, you know, I don't know what I thought, but yeah. but now I know it was just like, you know, is he a weirdo? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And my first major day was uh, slimy to the moon. Oh, the, yeah. The Wasa parade, uh-huh. where there was everyone and their brother and sister were in the crowd watching the event and they need lots of people. And I right-handed for baby bear was Mm. my first official gig. Although I did help out with a photo shoot and cookie on that first spectator day at lunch as well. So you did your first day was right-handing baby bear, David Rudman. Mm -hmm. And in the monitor classes, had you ever right-handed? I had right-handed, but as we all know now, the ingredients of being a good support team member style right hand versus just getting the job done are there we go. <laughs> they're not they're <laughs> very, very <different>. disparate um, <laughs> yeah. goals. Uh, and there was actually a point where, you know, I was I was of smaller frame, but I've always been a tall, um, somewhat you know, densely muscular person. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have bodybuilder frame, but I but I'd I had always I wasn't I wanted I wasn't a skinny dude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was uh, one with heft. So 
<laughs> I was very concerned about getting myself out from under the human cast, getting around things, getting my body out of the way so other people could move, and getting my hand up into Baby Bear was the here's where I'm trying to get. And so I was so into yeah. trying to figure me out and you know, I'm there, there that there was a point that I wasn't cognitive. I was doing this gesturing stuff yeah. and measuring my positioning around David Rudman's head. <laughs> uh-huh. So there was a point where I just felt him stiffen and he turned back and he's like, I've never been so aware of a right hand in my life. Oh, And I was like... <laughs> God. Which is the thing you don't want to oh, hear. Oh, no. That Whether is, it's your no. first day or your 500th day, you don't want to ever hear, I've never been so aware of a right and hand it, in my life. It marked my perception of myself for a hmm. very long time. I've, I, I was like, okay, maybe that's not the thing that I should be focused on then because apparently my instincts suck. So <laughs> I didn't try to quote unquote get good at it. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I like I I I I have extreme confidence in my abilities at it now. I'm also right. still aware of the fact that there are sometimes the space is just too small for someone right. of my size and there are more ideal frames that can fit into smaller faces but uh, spaces but as far as the ingredients of being a good support right hand um I I all the yeah. confidence in the world but there there I had a hump to get over after that experience. I will bet. Definitely. I'll bet because you know, in in a way, you were trying to do everything right. You were trying to be aware of everybody around you, which you do need to do. Sure, that that is a part of it. You also have to be aware of the dude that you're really, really, really there for. Well, and, and there's a way to like. Unfortunately, you know, I know now. It's like cameras off. Okay, we can all do whatever we're doing. Yeah, Th- there are individuals on set that have to focus more than you do. So even how you adjust your own weight, even if you're not touching another person, is different if you're trying to give space to the people who have to have more focus to have that focus. So everything about your physical persona, when you are trying to fade into the background, even when the camera isn't rolling, is a completely different style of attention than pretty much any other thing you do in your life. Mm -hmm. Like It's almost like... Who you are when you walk in the bedroom when someone else in the bedroom is asleep versus how you would walk into that room where there's no one else in the room. Yeah, you're I doing the same that. exact thing, the same exact focus, same but man. but you're what you're exp- giving into the room, into the uh-huh. space, even though it's not important, is a completely different attitude and and goal set. Intention, the intention's yeah. very different. Yep, and, and you can't learn that. it from someone else who's never had a good one. You can't, no. you can't learn it from a lead puppeteer who knows how to give you that information because how are the, they going to impart in that moment when they're focused on their thing all right. of that stuff? Like, yeah. how, you, you can't. Over the years then, you started doing not only assisting people, but you started doing roles, character roles, lots of character roles. Mm-hmm. And it really suits you. That's, that's your wheelhouse, doing those character roles. Can you talk a little bit about the joy you find in in those kinds of characters what what appeals to you about them oh wow that's a deep question i'm going to i'm going to plant the seed a little first yeah so i don't i don't think i didn't get invited to do more right hands on sesame because because of that first experience although it's possible david could have said ah, don't bring that guy back but there also just wasn't there was such a deep bench there wasn't the opportunity so 
I didn't get to get good at doing right hands because there weren't as many opportunities. I worked a total of like 12 times over those four years is the, the phrase that I typically use mm-hmm. before the auditions for Bear in the Big Blue House came along. And that particular producer dug deep enough down in the bench to get to someone like me because he was looking for a specific thing that he hadn't found in a couple of the characters. And again, what I brought to that audition, I think, kind of highlights what you're asking about. Because when I, when I auditioned for Bear in the Big Blue House... And this is about, what, 1996? Seven. 1997. Seven. My Shakespearean training, the uh, all the stuff that I had gone through, you know, um, all the, the experience the theater as a kid... Um, watching what worked and what didn't, uh, again, being more fascinated as to how things and why things were successful rather than asking other people if they thought I was successful, if that makes sense. Like the approach of why does that work for me? I want to emulate. Why is that thing that's happening up there working for me? I want to try and get that. Yeah. As opposed to the external validation of... Did that make you laugh? Mm-hmm. I, I, I was like, does that make me laugh? Yeah. Basically. Which yeah. is, it's a hard switch to flip. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't. I think, you know, some people are successful without doing it that way. It's just, I, I think that's, that's what works best for me. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not really looking to make you laugh. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I have confidence that I'll be able to right. because I believe what I'm saying would make me laugh. And I, I believe in my interpretation of what's coming at me that hopefully, you know, I'll be simpatico with my audience. So th- the notion of trying to bring a range of depth to a character that is within a facet of me. It's like what I've heard some of the other mm-hmm. puppeteers talk about, about every character is a is a, a, a glorified, exemplified, blown up, caricaturized facet of your own self or some aspect of what's what's important or has become important or memory or a literal part of you characters in general because with what we do you're very very rarely alone on screen and if you are it's more about the material than the character because in in my experience understanding how a character is unique is watching them react to something differently than you would it's not necessarily expressing different ideas because if you're expressing an idea that's different, it's in order to create a reaction. So typically what we're doing on screen, again, is, is we're, we're reacting. If, you, if you're the character with a new, a different way of uh, seeing something or if you say something that, that hasn't been said before or is to drive a scene, it's in order to create a reaction either yeah. in the audience or the character. So the notion of diving into a character deeply enough to believe yourself and hopefully for the audience that the moment is honest and they're not doing it just to entertain unless yeah. that's the goal like with Fozzie and obviously he's not sure. good at it or that kind of thing. Communicating with, with an audience that the reaction is honest, believable and justifiable. Mm-hmm. You can see how that character would react in that way. And often you laugh because, oh, I, I think I know how they're going to react to this. And they do, or they do it in a surprising way. And you're like, yeah. ah, I knew it. Like the characters you fall in love with are because you think you know who, what they are and how they're going to look at the world differently than anybody else does. And how they're going to react to the world differently than anybody else does. And you look forward to 
watching that play out and what it means for them and the ripples that it creates. And the thing about it is this is a this is essentially an inanimate thing that you're also doing this with. Right. It's the character that you're creating internally. It's somehow coming through your hand and just your movement of your wrist sometimes. And that's and you know that the other level of what we do is like there's there's the character you want to engender and there's the choices you want to make from what's on the page and and what's happening uh, that wasn't on the page from from the other characters in the moment that's being specifically framed up by a specific camera angle to be able to translate all that stuff from an emotional point of view. But then you are translating to your point your emotion through a very specific technique of angling this inanimate object so that it mimics pantomime-esque expression so that you understand just from its physical positioning and the the angles of the head as compared and contrasted to the body, as compared and contrasted to the arms, as compared and contrasted to where the quote-unquote feet would or should be. And those <laughs> mime-esque expressions underscoring uh, just in facade what that emotional... Mm-hmm. Uh, communication is, uh, you know, attempting to be and doing that immediate translation of here's what I'm feeling and here's what that would look like. <laughs> yeah. Like all of that stuff that we talked about happens in a, a in an instant, you know, and, and it blends from one reaction to the other. Talk about Trilo in that way. Well, and that's the other thing too that's happened. My career has metaphor more metamorphed into you're you're a baseball fan. There's there's the guy who's kind of the utility player on the baseball yeah. team, can kind of do, can do any anything. of it. But there's still a thing that you know. But they're the best at blah. My the best at thing is nonverbal characters. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. I think, and I could be wrong, that if we were to look at my compare and contrast in my career, even with other puppeteers, as to probably who's had the most characters who don't actually say words. <laughs> you're the guy. I, 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 I think I am. Um, and oddly Which is enough, so odd because you are a very verbal person. And I think that's why. <laughs> I think it's because I know exactly what the character is trying to say. Yeah. I know on an infinitesimal detail every syllabic intent of what they want to say. Yeah. And representing that without using that. Because I have the specificity of what I'm trying to say yeah. is why it's successful. That's it. That's so, totally and, it. And even with Trilo, like with Trilo, Trilo is interesting because I was, I was hired. I've been told I was hired because of an acting choice in the audition. I was hired because I chose to have Trilo laugh at a mistake <laughs> as opposed to feeling bad about it. I made a mistake, silly me. And no one else had done that and in the the head uh, producer's mind mm-hmm. that was was something no one else had brought specifically to Trilo. Yeah. His his joy of life and experiencing everything for the first time not judging yourself when you don't necessarily uh assimilate it correctly. Um, yeah. He didn't judge, he just <laughs> yeah. laughed it off. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> As opposed to, oh, I didn't know. Well, you know, yeah, there's some yeah, other directions yeah. But an actor's instinct would be to give that weight to be like, oh, I've been instructed, you know, mm-hmm. where I was like, I, I chose 
to be entertained by it because the scene needed to end on an upbeat. And if and if it didn't end on an upbeat, this is weird. So that's what I chose. Yeah. But the thing about it was I wasn't a very good puppeteer as compared and contrasted with the other individuals who had been given the anchor roles in that particular program. I had not had the exposure. And it hurt. It still hurts. I cannot watch season one of Brandon Blue House because there's just everything that you need to learn in a three-camera environment, which I had never been given dialogue on a show where there is a line cut where you are seeing the images switch between three different and occasionally four different cameras that had never been – everything had been single camera or or maybe one switch. I had never had lines and dialogue and had to emote. You know – I'm performing a character who, in the overall extent, in that first season of Bear in the Big Blue House, was supposed to be a character experiencing language, supposedly helping kids around the two-year-old age or any of us adults now so that we can harken back to what that was like if you're learning a foreign (laughs) language. There's a point where you understand more than you can recall. Mm -hmm. You can hear... You're learning French, you're learning Spanish. You understand more Spanish than you can actually articulate and get to – there's a couple of words, but you can understand everything everybody's saying to you, but but finding the right words is is challenging. So so Trilo's supposed to be that, that two-year-old who – two-and-a-half-year-old coming up on three, understands just about everything, but can't always find the right words. And this was represented by Trilo having his kind of own language – with only every once in a while you could hear an actual English word. Yeah. So most of his expression had to be just puppetry. And here I am, one of the weakest puppeteers, one of the biggest puppetry challenges on the show as far as I'm concerned, even retrospectively. And I'm, and I'm not saying, you know, I, I'm not, you know, oh, poor me with that statement. It's just a matter of fact. Like, even the producer didn't necessarily understand the puppetry challenge I was being given. Yeah to try and have a nonverbal character really emote in situations that the that uh, the audience at home was supposed to be able to identify with so that the bare parental figure could come in and say, oh, you're feeling this, let me help you with that, yeah. and have kids understand exactly what Trilo is going through without him being able to say it. I had to be a good puppeteer <laughs> it makes in sense. a three-camera situation for yeah. the first time ever. Mm. Hold on, Tyler. It's time to ask a puppeteer a question about not puppets. Ask the puppeteer about not puppets. Today we're asking Sesame Street Muppet performer Pam Arciero a question about not puppets. Pam, what's your favorite kind of cocktail? Hmm. It's been a dark and stormy lately. <laughs> ah, can <laughs> you describe what that is? A dark and stormy is Bermudian black rum. Mm-hmm. And ginger beer. Mm-hmm. And I like a little seltzer to cut the sweetness. Yeah. And a lime. And it's just, it tastes almost like Christmas to me. Uh, there's huh. something about it that has a really holiday taste. And um, it also feels like summer and fun and running around uh, like a crazy person on the beach. Um, <laughs> it really, really is one of the most uh, fun drinks to me in the uh, Usually you find it on in East Coast bars, but it's mm-hmm. it's not so much West Coast, and that's because it's a uh, Bermudian. It's from Bermuda ah. originally, and it's just as fun in Bermuda. Dark and stormy. <laughs> Let's pick it right back up where we left off with Tyler Bunch. 
so your puppetry, your technical skills were not up to maybe the the level that your your character skills were. Right. Did you find that your character skills suffered because your technical skills weren't as good? Or do you feel like you were able to kind of get by and the proficiency of your character skills helped carry you through? Option B. I, I have always, well, since I decided that I was going to do this, I knew I had a stronger sense of character than the other people around me. I knew how to get to the the, the heart of a moment and the, the at least not the, you know the best a, a worthwhile expression of whatever was going on in mm-hmm. my head and what I was bringing to the table, finding it and bringing it out to the subtextual moments of the script. You know, even in high school, I, I knew I was bringing something other people didn't in that sense. Yeah. So, absolutely, my my sense of character and surprising, uh, uh, you know, even the other performers with a justifiable. The surprising, justifiable, emotional response. Um, I, I knew my character work and my sense of comedy were strong. And I just yeah. figured I had to get working really hard, really fast on marrying that with with the skill of puppetry so that I didn't always have to rely on, you know, literally on 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 sounds, on on <laughs> on being able to say it. So yeah, my, my, I, I, I think what I was bringing to the table to the script was stronger than what I was bringing to the table to this on the screen. So after a season of Bear in the Big Blue House, do you feel like you had enough hours on camera? But by, by the end of the season, were you like, okay, I think I'm getting it? Or did you feel like I got to keep working when I'm not working? Both. I, I, I felt like I was better by the end of season one, but I had also been, you know teaching friends and doing the workshops at the apartment and mm-hmm. stuff outside of that. Uh, and then I kept going between seasons one and season two so that I felt like I was, I was not dragging the impact of the show down. I, I, there were only two instances that I can really remember feeling like I was affecting production. Like oh. the, that second week, my first big song uh, the producer hadn't yet figured out that it it saved time to um, – we, we were on an elevated set, you know, with what we call plugs. They're all the four-by-four-foot platforms that were approximately three foot off the studio floor. Mm-hmm. It's in the same studio where we shoot Sesame Street now. And it was the same set that they shot Aliens and the Family on as far as the platforming is concerned. Mm-hmm. So the platforms that cr- were up on there. They created a camera alley, the two floors of Bear in the Big Blue House – Floor one faced floor two with a what we called a camera alley in between a big flat spot where the where the cameras would roll around, and that was all raised off the floor. And in any given room, they could take out sections of the platforming so that the puppeteers could stand on the actual studio floor, and Bear could stand on the three foot platforms so that the height of the puppets was comparable to Bear's height, much like they did on the on the old Muppet Show in certain sets. Yeah. Certain and you didn't have Sesame. to roll around on the floor or exactly. on very low rolling devices. So one of those low, low rolling devices is called an Oz around, and it's a thing you can kind of lean back on and strap to your to your butt with a seatbelt. My first time ever with my first big song with Bear, the producer was thought it was going to take up too much time to pull the plug, so they brought mm-hmm. out an Oz around. And now I'm doing my first big song, three cameras, doing choreography around another living human being who can't see where he's going while trying 
to manipulate the 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 puppet in all the ways we've already talked about. So yeah. on take seven of a full take of the song, they brought Peter Linz out to the floor to try and coach me. Mm-hmm. And and Peter was trying to do things, and I still remember looking over after I was trying to absorb what he wanted with all the things that were being thrown at me. And I remember him side glancing over to Mitchell Kriegman, the executive producer of the show, and kind of shrugging his shoulders and putting his hands up in the air and going, I can't, I don't know, because yeah. I wasn't getting there and he couldn't help me. I mean, you were given a, a huge weight of things to do and and being relatively inexperienced performer at that point. For many performers out there, that could be it for them. Like, they could not recover from that. Yeah, you would dissolve. Like, yeah. and, and additionally, like, there was n- there was no one there with with the communicative skill set and th- the, you know, nobody with a job to try and figure out how to help everybody who didn't have the informational set that everybody else had in their particular area of expertise to intercommunicate and figure out hey, this is why this is happening in this moment to this person. So mm-hmm. it's either we can help them by doing this or just understand that some of this, you know, th- th- there, there was no way for it not to feel like a complete failure. There was nothing about the ingredients of the situation. And luckily, I, I, I don't know which parent I can credit for this. I don't know <laughs> what it is, but yeah. my reaction wasn't, I suck, I should stop. My reaction was, well, that sucked. I got to figure out how to get better. I mean, you were very aware of your situation. Ingrained. But also thinking, I got to fix it. Right. And not letting yourself just like circle the drain. (laughs) And see, that's what's so funny that you said that. You said that because my pup tree wasn't that strong. It just wasn't. I was okay. And I I, I wasn't good at stillness. You know, Trila was a little frenetic. I still can't win you on that first time. But one of the other things that was asked of me in that first couple of weeks was to reenact the same scene in the bathtub that I got auditioned with where Trilo was afraid like afraid he was going to get sucked down the drain when he saw the water going down the drain. Uh-huh. And in order to mime you know, mime that notion, I had prepped myself up in, in this bathtub that was elevated on the set that I'm reaching up through. I had prepped myself in the early part of the scene so that I could be talking to Bear with my hand backwards so that at the time I talk about the drain, I could literally spin 360 as if I were spinning down the drain. <laughs> oh, man. And because I thought it would be funny. And I had done a similar spin style move in the Disney crew playing one of the lead characters. Uh-huh. I had set up in the initial part of the song that he walked down stage and I was facing backwards so that I could have him do a a perfect 360 ridiculously fast turn. So I had physically done it a couple of times. Like, oh, I could do that in this situation. Yeah. And I still remember both Mitchell and Peter going, how did you do that? Like, <laughs> so I, I, I knew I had the ability yes. to catch up with these people because I could still do surprising things even from a technique point of view. I yeah. just knew that I didn't have it yet and I needed to figure out how to get it. Yeah, you needed all the tools, and you had, you know, a couple of wrenches and yeah. a hammer. Bells and whistles, yeah. <laughs> and you got all those skills. And then also, your characters, Tyler, are so strong. And you're so good at doing those, especially when they're just like, you're only going to see him this one episode. He's going to come in. You're going to see him that time. He's got seven lines. You know, who do you give it to? You got to go to Tyler. He's he's the utility guy, like you said before. Okay. Right. You know? But you've also gotten to do, on Sesame, you... Apart from playing a variety of characters, you also now play 
Elmo's dad, Louis. Mm-hmm. And that was a role that, you know, that was originally played by Bill Beretta. Can mm-hmm. you tell me what that process was for you? I'm, uh, I'm going to try and relay my understanding of the specifics of the scenario, underscoring that no part of this is saying any sort of judgment on how things happened. It's just the nature of the beast when you work for a small company with a big name, which ultimately, if you go to the Fortune 500 scenario, Sesame Street's not a big company. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a, a wonderfully generous, not-for-profit company right. that happens to have reached out to touch a lot of the world. And so their philanthropic endeavors are always around, but and mm-hmm. because we have a tendency to associate name recognition with <laughs> corporate and financial status that yeah. two don't necessarily equate one another. So Bill developed this amazing character in concert with with Kevin and um the two of them kind of mashed minds on who he should be and what he should be and how he should come across on camera and all that and Bill uh, being a very talented performer has lots of other things going on in his world and he's based right. in California. And so he came out for the first couple endeavors when 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 Louis was making his first splash in some of what we call the outreach programs, uh, specifically for some of the things that Sesame does for military families. And as he became a tool in Sesame's kit, and they wanted to start using him more, the budgets for for each endeavor weren't necessarily able to absorb bringing Bill to the East Coast and finding Mm -hmm. a place for Bill to be. And Bill wasn't necessarily in a position to say no to the other things in his life and effectively um, be generous with his his time and figuring out a way to to transport himself and or find couches to crash on to be able to be part of it. It just created and snowballed into a situation where the two creative entities couldn't be in the same space. So I had right-handed for Bill a couple of times and jokingly mocked and mimicked him um, <laughs> uh, because I, I could do a version of his voice, especially when he's right there. It's not always yeah. as dead on when he's not right there. But when he was right there, I could parrot it and, and I, I, you know, he'd give me the little side eye and his eyebrow go up. <laughs> so because I had right-handed him a few times, when he couldn't make one of the trips... It was suggested that that I do Louis for this this one um, adventure, and then the next one Bill could be there, and then the one after that he couldn't, and then the next one he couldn't, and then the next one he couldn't, and eventually mm-hmm. Bill, to his credit, was like, "This is silly." Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I've been looping occasionally when it's been necessary, but you're being unfair to the audience. The, the character is being watered down because there are, are two artists with, with two, they may not be horribly different approaches, but they're different approaches. And it's not the same character. And if you want to be consistent with the character, it should just be the same person. And right now it just makes sense if, if you just, just give it to Tyler because this just isn't, it doesn't make sense to do this anymore. Hmm. And that's the conversation he had with them. <laughs> I got the phone call saying, hey, we'd like for you to do this. And then I picked up the phone and said, hey, Bill, what's going on? Is this okay? And he explained to me everything that I just said. Um, so uh, to his credit, Bill's love for Louie had him kind of let Louie go, which yeah. um, I uh, could not be more grateful for, and I hope I do him proud. Your, your version of Louie is great. He's great. There's something so warm 
uh, well, I'll talk about the the special we did during during the pandemic. There's a moment in the end when he says, "Be safe out there," and he's talking. Everything is direct to camera, and it's just so real. And it's exactly what you're ta- what you were talking about earlier with character. And it's it's not overplayed. It's just right, and Thanks. it feels good, and it feels genuine and authentic. That's who your Louis is to me. Your Louis is very authentic, and it's great. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it means a lot coming from you. Taking that taking that rollover from from Bill, really, you you you've really made a career out of creating your own characters. What is the difference to you uh, creating a character uh, from nothing versus taking on somebody else's character like Louis? My intellectual approach is akin to. Again, harkening back to Shakespeare, there are a myriad of amazing performances of of every one of his characters all over the globe, and now even in other um, languages. But there are aspects of the characters on the page that are undeniable, and why so many people are interested in in bringing them to life with whatever unique aspects of them. To to me, the the language of the character is what has come before in this instance. If you don't have the luxury of, of trying to make it pop off the page, well, then you're trying to be true to the experience and why the character touched you the way the character did. Mm-hmm. But more specifically, what you think the performer was doing to create that reaction in you. Like one of the yeah. things that happens with the quote-unquote fan art a lot of times is it starts skewing in, in any property anywhere in Star Wars stuff or you know Muppet stuff, whatever it is, it starts skewing towards the creator's notion of why it affected them in the way that it did. So they have a tendency to paint the characters with the brush of what the specific narrative that they're remembering affected them as yeah. or, or how yeah. how they were or why they were inspired to want to play with the characters as opposed to trying to reenact the thing in the characters that inspired them. So trying to look at, again, in the same way, harkening back to that Fraggle Rock thing, what's going on? How does that work? Why does it work? What is it about Louis? And more specifically, what is it about Louis as contrasted with Elmo that is making me feel the way I'm feeling about their relationship right now? So looking at what Bill did and thinking of it as subtext and looking at it really thinking, he's like, okay, this is how I was reacting, and then throwing it away. And not trying to be Bill, not trying to emulate what I think Bill would have done, but trying to emulate how Bill would have felt about it and how Bill would have made you realize or think that Louis is feeling about it. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that a lot. That's a good answer. Good answer, and, good answer. Yeah, versus making your own character. You're just, you know, whatever you want to do. And what's funny is that, like, the first couple of times I did Louis with Kevin... I could see, like, Kevin had a certain idea of what the impact of Sesame characters were. Mm-hmm. And Bill is undeniably, uh, unapologetically subtle in just about everything that he does, which is kind of the opposite of, of the Sesame style. Yeah. It still worked because, you know, he was the stillness around which Elmo kind of thunder but the first couple of times that i had a solo moment like when kevin was directing he, he kept trying to get me to make my performance bigger move the puppet around yeah and i'd be like no that's not that's not nope. louis that, that, yeah. that would be weird 
Yeah, it would, that be, would weird. be that would be a facade. It wouldn't it wouldn't be weird. And all due respect to Kevin, I'm not in any way saying that was wrong. It's but it was his frame of reference. Of, exactly. This is what the Sesame guy. This is what, this is what do. Sesame does. This is this is you know this is Louis's place in this world or whatever. He 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 was. Yeah, again, you know that's that's why an ensemble works is everybody yeah. looks at it their own way and does things their own way and you know like any other amazing you put certain instruments together in any grouping <laughs> of instruments and the five piece this or five string that or orchestra that you have sounds that complement each other and and tones that work and blend but you you don't try to play the violin solo on the tuba it's just you don't do that it doesn't happen <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> so, there's a lot of different flavors of ice cream whatever analogy you want to put in it you said uh, bill is kind of the he's very subtle in his performance look at his uh, performance of bobo Mm-hmm. Everything is so small, so so tiny, so, 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 huge, so, so massive and it's a thing, giant puppet, which is little, you know, tiny, tiny thumb, just the thumb, just the thumb, and not even just the thumb. It's just the last joint of the thumb. He only uses the last. Yeah, breeding, Think, breeding, yeah. Breeding. Look at anything with Bobo in it, and it's such a tiny, 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 tiny little movements, and that's Bill. You know, that's that is Bill. I was one of the. Uh, I get one of the biggest compliments I feel I could ever get was that Bill consistently. If there was a choice, Bill consistently put me in in Bobo and the the Muppets thing, uh, the yeah. Muppets on on ABC. Because well, let, let's talk about uh, Muppets now, real quick. The Muppets. Since we talked about that, you've done uh, various things for the Muppets over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were in the you were in both movies, right? Yes, brief briefly in the quote unquote the, the second the second of the Disney efforts. Yeah, but in uh, the first one, you were uh, you were Thog, that big blue. Mm-hmm. Thing, thog. <laughs> uh, actually, it ended up. Didn't it end up being larger than what the original thog was? Yeah. See, okay. What happened was <laughs> obviously they thrown the original away. He had disintegrated, and uh, Jim Krupa, to his credit, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> tried to do research and find photos. And the photos he found from the angles he found and compared and contrasted to the other things on set, like the original opening, the. Um, uh, uh, oh, why do I forget their names? The dudes, the ducks thing, purple heads. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. The uh, the uh, mutations, mutations. Oh, I can't ding, believe I forgot that. Oh, the Muppet nerds are gonna be screaming. Um, <laughs> he did a projection on a wall to do his initial outline, and then do a pattern from that. So a number of things: uh, the angle of the camera from that original photo, the fact that he did an outline and did a pattern from the profile as opposed to kind of backing off to the fur and the foam he he did the the pattern from the poofy furred out version and made the foam from that and then fur went on top of that on top of so many many factors contributed to thug being approximately three foot taller than the original and because the original you know when the Jerry did it, when C did it, their 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 heads were basically where his mouth was, and then there was the stuff above. That was not the case on this one. In this version, there was um, an aluminum frame hiking backpack with mm-hmm. welded on aluminum struts that went to a plywood circle, approximately two feet above my head, <laughs> which is what his head <laughs> sat on. So Thog went from being seven and a half, eight feet to. 10 and a half, 11 feet. Yeah, he was and big. that also meant that the inside of him, myself being a grown human being, my wing, wingspan being about six feet, I could be in him in the aluminum 
uh, strut thing, put my arms straight out to my sides and kind of move them around sort of uh, perpendicular <laughs> to the floor windmill style and not touch anything. He literally was that big. How did you get in through the, through the back? Uh, we called it the thogina. Um, there was a split between his legs uh, okay. that I could kind of, they could rest him on something and then I could climb in in between the back legs and then right. get inside. Yeah. Or they could take the top part off sometimes too. I feel like I remember when we we walked through the arches because I was Sweetums mm-hmm. and you were a thog and I don't remember if I was right next to you or if, I can't remember exactly, but I do feel like we had to like walk you backwards. Right. Like, don't move off of this mark. You've got to move right. backwards very carefully because you were grazing the sides of the arches. Yeah, I literally, yeah, they thought they wanted to do the original, mimic the original choreography and have him come through the arches, but he was too wide to fit through it. And that's the, that's a perfect example is that those arches were built to the original blueprints yeah. and Thog was too big to fit through them, which he did in the original opening credit sequence. That's right. So we kind of faked it that I just backed up and and kind of nestled into the arch so that I could just start moving as if I had come through it. We yeah, pitched right. making a gag of him not being able yeah. to go through it, but but Mr. Bobbin wouldn't didn't yeah. think it was funny. And then you also played uh didn't you play one of the uh one of the bums? Yes. You're one of the bums. Of the, you have a line with you know, you and uh you and uh, Zach Galifianakis. There's some yeah. play between I think it was you and, and Bill and, and Bruce Zach Lenoil, and, right? And Bruce Lenoil, yeah. We got to improvise a couple of different times. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that was the other thing about the improvising is that uh, there was a point where we didn't rehearse. We just had to roll on uh, because we were on Hollywood Boulevard. They'd shut it down and we're all coming out of the theater and it's the bad guys at the end and they're chasing and nobody had really taken into account how long it was going to take. The big truck of puppeteers were all sitting on one big thing to wheel together so that they could actually move the 10 feet that was necessary to get out of frame. <laughs> yeah. So all the moopets, the bad guy Muppets that the main bad guy had brought together um, are kind of chasing him out of frame because he's skedaddling and they're all moving. And so they started with wit. And we got a third of the way through the frame. Hey, is it good? Blah, blah, blah. And we're a third of the way through the frame. All the lines on the page had been eaten up. We were out of page lines. <laughs> they just da 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 da. And so, in the moment, I, and I and there are people who have asked me, "How long did you think about that line?" And I honestly, I, I swear to you, in I this came to me, and I don't know how. I thought it would be hilarious <laughs> if Waka Waka was somehow an ethnic curse slur. So I literally <laughs> shouted out, hey, you owe us money, man. What the walker? <laughs> yeah. And we got out of frame, dead silence, cut. Everybody starts laughing. What and Dave Goals walker? turns back to me and he's like, what did you just say? <laughs> and I said, I said, what the walker? <laughs> I'll never use that. Don't never use that. Don't never use that. <laughs> then cut to, not only did they use it, it wound up being uh, the... The name, if you will, the gag of the cast and crew T-shirt. It was the mm-hmm. What the Waka Tour. Yeah, and it had as if the Muppets were a band, and they were on the front. The, were That's the band, right. and then on the back was every location, every city or part of yeah. LA that we had played in as concert, you know, stops. And there were a lot. Yeah, there were a yeah. lot. The What the Waka Tour. And uh, you've done other stuff for Muppets. You were on. You were on the ABC Muppet series. There were things about that show that I think suited the characters unbelievably well it was it was a it was a cool setup i think it you know yeah it it took advantage of some 
some tropes that audiences at large were consuming at the time, but audiences mm-hmm. at large were consuming it at the time. Yeah, so. why wouldn't you take advantage of that? What was good about that is it was like a good chunk of work. I thought we were doing some quality work. Uh, uh, and you I got agree. to do our, you got to do the Muppets Take the Bowl. Didn't do the bowl. Only oh, wait, the you bowl. did the O two. Did the O two? Because uh, I remember you were the, uh, the <laughs> you were the executioner. I mean the masseuse. Yeah, Reggie. <laughs> Reggie the, the masseuse. The masseuse. That's right. But you were kind of dressed funny. like a... Yeah, like a Tower of London. It was yeah. a London gag. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was. Tower of London executioner. Did you like that? That experience of doing those live shows? The, I did. The well, Muppet I, show? Yeah. I, I mean, it was interesting because it's kind of a, a, a combination, much like, uh, you know, Henson's uh, improv show that we've done on and off for... Well, they still do, but for 15 years now, um, the kind of combining of the two loves, because for the most part for me, that style of puppetry, uh, Disney crew kicked it off. But then after that, I was never, I'm never necessarily in the theater again with that style. Um, the only thing that came close was the, the stage version of, um, Emmett Otter that we did at the Goodspeed Opera House that was supposed to be part of, uh, I believe a theater experience in New York this winter season, but it looks like that might not be happening. Maybe next maybe, season. Maybe next season. Uh, you know, before we go, I do want to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Do it. Okay, so here we go. Are you ready? Ready? Here <clears> we go. <throat> What's the hardest part about being a puppeteer? Uh, consistency of employment, if you focus <laughs> on it as a major. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what's the easiest part about being a puppeteer? Uh, you can wear whatever the heck you want to wear. <laughs> what's your biggest strength as a performer? Um, justification, being able to put two things that don't necessarily belong in the same space in the same space and figuring out a good reason why. What's your biggest weakness? I have a tendency to forget that other people are very sensitive about their art because I am not. (laughs) What's one of your favorite things about being a Sesame Street Muppet performer? Knowing that you are part of an ensemble and just doing good at your job, you'll, you'll never have to worry about the other members of the team. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't a performer, what would be your career? Well, like we talked about, I'd probably be, I'd probably be a zoologist. Yeah. I would probably be making um, documentary, nature documentary films. Uh, there are people that are listening out there who definitely want you to tell them what they have to do to become a Muppet performer. So what would you tell them? There's a different answer from when I started my career. Uh, and unfortunately, they are the Muppets have been around for so long, you want to conflate what they were with what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be a Muppet performer. Be an artist who gets good at a specific skill set and find what your strengths are. And perhaps they will help you fall into an ensemble. And if you're lucky enough, maybe it'll be an ensemble that's as amazing as the Muppet. What's the best piece of advice that you have gotten during your career? Advice. That's a good one. I think it would be the audition is the job. The job is icing on the cake. Ah, that's nice. All right, uh, Jerry Nelson once said to me, Sesame Street is great, uh, but you 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 always have to have something that is your own, that that you create, that comes from you. So Tyler, 
what is that thing for you? I, I don't know if I can point to a specific thing. What I can say is that I have tried to be, like I said before, a good team player. I am someone who wants to help you make your thing better. There's always somebody out there who needs other people to play with in order to do their thing. I want to be the person that no matter what you ask me to do within that thing, I'm going to help you take it to the next level up in any way, shape, or form. So I my thing is consistently informing myself about the industry, about the pieces and parts of the industry and how they work. I, I built a recording studio in my basement and have been learning how all of the pieces and parts go together. So that if someone says, hey, I want you to do this thing for me that's a character in a blah 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 we can spend the time making it better rather than trying to figure out how we're going to get my voice to them or do the thing. We, we spend the time not figuring it out but improving it. Yeah. I love that answer. That's a great answer. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate you talking to me. You, Matt. This is cool. Well, that's Below the Frame. Check us out on Instagram at Below the Frame or on Twitter at Below Frame. And if you want, you can search for us on Facebook, too. We're, we're there. You'll see us. Our show today was produced by me. The theme song was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by the Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast artwork was created by Dave Holteen at DaveHolteenDesign.com. The award from our sponsor players today for Blue Skies were Haley Jenkins, Tal Bennett, Kathy Kim, Spencer Lott, Megan Pifus, Chris Thomas Hayes, and Lara McLean. And it was written by Austin Costello. Thank you to Tyler Bunch, to Pam Arciero, and to my son Jack for being a part of this episode. And thanks to you, the fans, for listening. My name is Matt Vogel. We'll see you next time when we go below the frame. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.